Welcome to the Living by Faith podcast. My name is Josh DeGroat, and this is episode number eight. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast where I take a look at some news items, theology, and history, all from the perspective of the Christian's life of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and jump in. Why is every human life so precious? What is it about human life that is particularly valuable? This is something that we need to think about, and we need to think about very deeply. A big news story from a couple of days ago was of the death of a black man at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. An extremely disturbing video surfaced on the morning of Tuesday, May 26th, showing a man named George Floyd handcuffed on the ground on his stomach with a police officer's knee on his neck while he groans and begs for breath. Eventually, he dies. His body goes limp. He's lo- his lifeless body is loaded into a police, co- a police vehicle, and he dies. I'm not sure if he died on the scene, or some say he died at the medical facility that he was taken to. This is extremely bothersome, but why should it bother us so much? I mean, the video is breathtaking, literally, and stomach-turning to watch. This is another instance of police officers seemingly unnecessarily using lethal force on a black man. Of course, there's so much we don't know yet, but from the video, there does seem to be little regard for the life of this man being smothered to death on the ground. Again, as he's gasping for breath, asking for help, there's a police officer with his knee on his neck and another officer standing there watching. And apparently there were two other officers at the scene as well. It doesn't appear that these officers were in in an ounce of danger or even felt like they were in danger. Now the question is being asked, did racism play a role in how Floyd was treated? And by that, I mean, or when I ask that question, I mean, was there animus toward this black man in their hearts, in the hearts of these police officers, or in the policing policies of the city of Minneapolis? For some, the obvious answer is yes. And I just would say, I don't don't know for sure. I don't want to speculate either. But what these police officers did was wrong. There's a call for justice, an obvious call for justice, and every Christian should say a hearty amen. There ought to be justice for George Floyd, no doubt. But not mob justice. There ought to be justice, real justice. There ought to be justice and only justice, as Deuteronomy 16.20 puts it. Or to put it another way, there ought to be biblical justice. This is an absolute tragedy. And what makes it so weighty, and this goes back to the original question I posed at the beginning, why is human life so valuable? Why is it so precious? The reason why this tragedy is so weighty is that George Floyd is an image bearer of God. He is made by God in God's image, and he is a man who should have been treated with dignity and respect, even if he needed to be arrested, rather than treated with cold indifference, which the video seems to clearly show. There was very little concern or no concern at all for George Floyd's life. But what would justice look like? What would it look like for George Floyd to get justice? 
It would certainly mean more than these police officers losing their jobs, which they did, and I'm glad that they did. They should have. Biblical justice would include a trial with evidence. And if the evidence points to a crime, which if the video is used as evidence, which I'm sure it would be, seems to point to a crime, these police officers should face the full weight of the law for their crimes. And for the Christian, this has historically included even the death penalty for the crime of murder. In the Noahic covenant, God gave this command to Noah. After the flood, after the flood had receded, God gave this command to Noah in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Do you hear the logic there? If someone sheds the innocent blood of another, intentionally sheds the innocent blood of another, his blood shall be shed. Life is so sacred to God that one who intentionally kills another person forfeits his right to life. And the reason given, this is by God, the reason given by God is that human beings are created imago dei, or in the image of God. God created George Floyd in his own image. This is why human life is so sacred. We, as human beings, bear the stamp of God. Of course, this is not advocating for vigilantism or anything like that, vigilante justice. Later, this truth is developed in Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul says that the governing authorities bear the sword and are God's servants to punish evil and reward good. And so as we watch this story unfold in Minneapolis, we should pray that as the blood of George Floyd is crying out, God would hear and that his justice would prevail. Now in Minnesota, there's no death penalty, so that wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't take place there. But we should pray that these officers are held fully accountable for what they've done. And we should also live with hope because we live in a world where injustice often takes place. Justice is often not served. And so we need to live in hope that this won't be the case forever. Let's face it, some get away with unspeakable evil. But as Christians, we realize that in actuality, they don't. Because the judge of all the earth sees everything and knows everything and is keeping a meticulous record And every person will stand before him someday. This judge's name is Jesus Christ. And therefore, every police officer, every judge, and every member of Congress, and every president, and every other person, including you and I, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ in order to receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And Christ's judgment will be perfect. Now, when you hear that, you're like, oh boy, we're going to stand before Jesus. But there's a hope held out to us all as well. And it's through faith in Christ. On that day, you you and I can face him not only as our judge, but also as our Savior. The next section is what I call the catechesis section. And uh, it's where we go. We're going through a modern catechism called the New City Catechism. For centuries, Christians gave themselves to the practice of learning the Christian doctrines um, by way of a catechism. 
the word catechesis simply means to teach orally or instruct by word of mouth. And this is a practice I think is sorely missed in our day. And so I want to I want to do my part in promoting this practice once again. I think we would benefit tremendously. So New City Catechism is a new catechism. It borrows from some old ones and puts it together in in more modern language. You can download a free app on your phone, and I would highly suggest you do it. There's 52 questions and answers with scripture, so there's one for each week. We're just making our way through it. Um, And so today we are on question number eight. And the question is this, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? And the answer is just going through the Ten Commandments. So it's kind of long. So here's the answer. Answer to question number eight. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. So there you go. That's the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Historically, the Ten Commandments has been seen as having two parts or two tables, two tables of the law. The first table is the first four commandments, which deal with how we relate to God and love God. The second table, or the, uh, or the second part of, of the Ten Commandments, is commands 5 through 10, which, how, uh, which have to do with how we relate with one another and love our neighbor. Now, it would be easy to look at these Ten Commandments and focus merely on the externals of the commands and think, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Right? I haven't killed anybody, and I'm not bowing down to statues and worshiping them. But there are two problems with this view. The first is that Jesus ups the ante when he gets to the heart of the law, which is not about external observance merely, but internal heart obedience. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through a couple, gives a couple of examples of this, when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, but I say to you that if you in anger call your brother a fool, you have murdered him in your heart. And he goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And so Jesus clearly tells us that obedience to the law cannot be merely external conformity, but internal transformation must govern and, and, and uh, empower our obedience to the law. It comes from an internal motivation. The second problem uh, to the idea that you can just just externally observe the law is that you and I and every person is born in bondage to sin or slaves of sin. It is not that we are sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are born sinners. We are born in sin, and so we sin because we want to, because we love it. Jesus makes this clear in John 3 when he, when he says that men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. 
And so we need, we need something to happen to us in order to wrench us free from the prison cell of sin. Well, for all who are born again, that's exactly what happens. Ephesians chapter 2 says that when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ and talks about how that is how we are graciously saved. And when by the grace of God one is born again, the powerful pull of sin is broken and we are enabled by the Spirit to obey from the heart out of love for God. This leads to the scripture for question and answer number eight, and it comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse three. It says this, you shall have no other gods before me. Of course, this is, this is the essence of what it means to love God, that he is first in our lives. It all starts with loving God, and we need to have our hearts transformed so that God takes away the enmity in our heart toward him and we love him from the heart and seek to obey him from the heart. In the history section, I want to talk about a man who helps us to think about how we should as Christians fight for social reform and justice. His name is William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a man who labored long and hard for social reform, and he did it while keeping the gospel central. He didn't didn't jettison the gospel to talk about justice and social reform and moral reform in society. In fact, William Wilberforce was, you might say, is the tip of the spear in the battle to abolish the slave trade and later slavery in Great Britain in the late 18th century and early 19th century. Wilberforce was converted to Christ at the age of 27. And one one year after his conversion, he wrote in his diary the high purpose he felt God had called him to. He wrote this, quote, God Almighty has set two things before me, two great objects before me, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Unquote. When he said the reformation of manners, he meant reformation of morals. And he would give the rest of his life, 46 years, to see the reprehensible practice of the slave trade and slavery itself abolished. Soon after he wrote these words in his diary, Wilberforce, a member of the British Parliament, made it clear to his colleagues that the next session he would bring a motion to end the slave trade. Of course, his colleagues, many of them mocked him. Many of them were outraged at even the idea of it. And it would take 20 years for the, for the abolition of the slave trade to be made law. Now, not slavery itself, but the slave trade, the horrific practice of stealing, selling, and buying slaves, which was a huge industry in which owners of slave ships profited tremendously. For Wilberforce, the the end of the slave trade wasn't the end of the battle because African men and women were still enslaved, were still treated as as little more than than cattle as they were were owned by, by their masters and treated horrifically. It would take another 26 years to see slavery abolished in the British controlled lands. Three months before his death, Wilberforce put one final petition to end slavery 
before the parliament, and the decisive vote came just three days before Wilberforce would die. It's amazing. Slavery was finally outlawed on July 26, 1833, three days before Wilberforce died. The question is, what fueled Wilberforce's passion for social activism? It was undeniably the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the joy that Wilberforce found in Christ through the gospel. And he believed the fundamental problem of his day, which led to the toleration of slavery, the slave trade, and many other immoral, ungodly vices, was a mistaken understanding of the gospel. In his own words, speaking about, or speaking about ungodly, lost people, he wrote this, quote, They consider not the Christ- that Christianity is a scheme for justifying the ungodly by Christ dying for them while yet sinners, a scheme for reconciling us to God when enemies of God and for making the fruits of holiness the effects, not the cause of our being justified and reconciled, unquote. This is an amazing admission for a politician, no less, and one who was given the charge of making laws. He was saying that in order for people's sinful, immoral, ungodly, reprehensible behavior to change, they needed to truly grasp the gospel of free grace through Christ and see that holiness is the effect, not the cause, of God's grace. It's amazing. Well, Wilberforce lived it. The grace of God through Christ fueled him for decades in the fight to see slavery abolished, and just three days prior to his death, it was. Paul too, the Apostle Paul, was fueled by the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. May you and I also be able to say this, and may we live to do as much good as we can as long as we live. Thanks again for listening to the Living by Faith podcast. If you found it helpful, please subscribe, like, and share. And until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all.